Good evening. I'm Judy Cooper. I, I coordinate the public programs here at the Pratt Library, and I'm really delighted to see all of you here this evening. This is a great crowd. We're glad you're here because this is a very special event. Um, we're so happy to have um, author John Hunter, author and teacher John Hunter, and filmmaker Chris Farina here. This is um, one of our many Writers Live programs. We bring over 100 authors here to the Pratt Library. Uh, and for the most part, they're all free. And these programs are made possible through the generous support of individuals and organizations who contribute to the Pratt Library. And this evening's program was made possible by One Main Financial. And we'd like for you to say thank you to them. And we always find that um, our programs are most successful if we partner with other organizations here in the city um, who have a similar mission or who, who um, we think would like to hear or, hear or see these speakers. And we're very fortunate this evening to partner with Teach for America Baltimore. And this is not the first time we've worked together, and we hope that we'll continue to work together in the future. And here to introduce tonight's program is Courtney Cass, the Executive Director of Teach for America Baltimore. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is a great crowd. This is really exciting to see so many people of all ages who've come out for, for tonight's event. Um, as Judy said, my name is Courtney Cass. I'm the executive director of Teach for America in Baltimore. Um, and I wanted to start with a few thank yous. First to Judy, without whom tonight would not be possible. She's been involved in the planning at every single level, so thank you. Um, a huge thank you to the Enoch Pratt Free Library, which is one of the most exceptional places for really bringing people together around great ideas and great stories. Um, so a special thanks to Carla Hayden, the executive director, and to Jamie Kaplis, who really helped put on tonight's event. And finally, I want to echo Judy's thanks to our sponsor, One Main, in particular, Sheldon Kaplis, who was instrumental in tonight's event and also supporting so many great causes across the city. So thank you all. And I also have the great honor of introducing tonight's program. Um, and I can tell from meeting these two gentlemen upstairs that it's just going to be a lot of fun. They both have incredible energy. Um, so it is teacher, musician, author, filmmaker, I'm sure many other hats, John Hunter, and director and filmmaker Chris Farina, both of whom now live in Charlottesville, Virginia, but Chris is actually originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and John has spent some time in Baltimore. So in some ways, this is a homecoming. Um, at Teach for America, our mission is to ensure that no matter where a child is born, he or she has the opportunity to receive an excellent education. And we do that by developing teachers and leaders. And at their best, our teacher's charge is really to develop the leadership and talents of their students. And obviously, part of doing that is through academics, 
But another really, really critical part of student development is character, developing their kids as, as self-advocates, developing their mindsets, developing them as young citizens who are going to pursue peace. And because of that aim, tonight's event just seemed like such a natural fit, because as you're going to see in the film that we're about to watch, um, World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements, which tells the story of John Hunter's work as he developed a game in 1978 that really introduces students to the concept of peace, not as something that's utopic and elusive, but something that they can actually tangibly pursue and create, um, which I think is just a really exciting concept. I can't wait to see the film. So the film was made in 2006. It uh, was first screened in 2010 at South by Southwest. Um, and tonight is actually the first time it's ever being shown in the state of Maryland. Um, and on a final note, I just want to make sure everyone knows that tonight after the film, um, Lionel Foster, who's here with us somewhere and, and who helped, um, there's Lionel, and who really helped bring um, John and Chris here and make this evening happen, is going to facilitate a question and answer period with John and Chris where we can learn a little bit more about the game and the film and the book that, um, the book on the topic that was released this year. So with that, uh, thank you all for being here, and let's enjoy the film. Funding for this film is provided in part by the Martin Institute for Teaching Excellence, offering professional development opportunities for teachers. Connect, educate, innovate. Online at martininstitute.org. And by FedEx committed to advancing academic achievement and providing higher education opportunities for all. FedEx, solutions that matter. Okay, we start off with a reading from Sun Tzu, the Chinese general, his book, The Art of War, which of course, as you know, is basically how to stay out of war. And for the most part, if you're in it, how to get out of it quickly. And he says, <coughs> Therefore, a victorious army first wins and then seeks a battle. A defeated army first battles and then seeks victory. Read that again, yeah. Therefore, a victorious army first wins and then seeks a battle. A defeated army first battles and then seeks victory. are important in education. That really may be even the key to teaching well is the relationship you have with the student. If you're able to touch their mind, fine, but if you can touch their heart, then the mind contact lasts longer and goes deeper, I think.
Uh, welcome to the World Peace Game. I'm very, very sorry, but you're going to have to have fun today. No! Uh, I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay. Now, listen, please. Listen, please, if you would. I'm going to explain the game for the next half hour, 45 minutes. I will give you a lot of information. You're going to have to absorb a lot and quickly. You're going to do it through your ears and through your eyes. This is the World Peace Game. It's about 28 years old. It's a political science simulation. The game basically pits four or five countries against each other in every way, politically, socially, militarily, and economically. They're pitted against each other, and they have to use their imagination, use their thinking skills to think their way out of these problems that they're pitched into headfirst. They try to do it without combat if possible. And, of course, the game starts with them inheriting situations on the verge of chaos and combat. And uh, they've got to think their way out of that situation. We'll start with this country over here. This country is one of the wealthiest countries. It has, as you can see, a large population. When I first saw it, I was like, this is, looks so boring and dumb. It looks yeah, like just yeah, like a boy's like, play land. It, 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 because it, you know how little boys, they, like, they love like, guns and cool, little team army men. men. What I think is you can't be all about war and you can't be, again, this may sound bad, but you can't be all about peace. Yeah, not like all like flowers and grassy fields and uh, year, solar uh, panels and last houses. Year, no, it's not like that. Um, you'll have to have some defense. You'll be getting a top secret dossier with documents in it. These documents are yours. They're secret. You must not lose them. It is a $25 million fine, plus worlds of trouble if you lose them, because that means somebody else will have them. So you'll get your own country's document. Each country will have a different color. Um, the United Nations will be selected. Our weather people will be selected. The random people who do randomizing things. We have random stock market, random weather spinners there. That person or those people will be in control of the random events that happen. Okay, Prime Ministers, here we go. We put a lot of thought and time into this, these selections. Would you accept the job, the office of Prime Minister? Miss Amelia Thompson, would you please stand? You accept it? Round of applause for Thompson. Amelia has a very quirky sense about her. I, think I, I like that sort of a little bit off-center kind of approach she takes to things. I never know what she's going to say, but I know it will be interesting. Would you accept the job? Mr. Cohn. Yes. We have a very, I would say, scholarly leader in David. He's a very well-rounded, well-read young man. Uh, very outgoing, very well-spoken, and not afraid to speak out on his ideals and beliefs. Would you accept the job? Miss Bria Williams. Yes. Bria Williams. She is one of our top students in the entire school. Very self-assured and confident and uh, very poised and self-effacing about it. It's very normal and natural to her to be smart. And I'm really uh, twofold, having her there because she's a good leader, but having her there because she's a good role model to other students and particularly to other girls that it's great and normal and natural to be smart in front of other people. Would you accept the office of Prime Minister, Mr. Caden Sullivan? Yes! Caden, the young man who is very um, disciplined, he's very precise, precision-oriented, very focused, uh, and can really 
zero in on problems and questions and cut out extraneous background noise and get, get things done. Here's what we're going to do in the next step. The prime minister are going to go to different corners of the room and they're going to select their officers one by one. Now remember, you can choose your best friend all you want to. However, your best friend may not be good for that job, so choose the person in this room who can do the job for you the best. Ms. Chiambati, do you accept the position of Secretary of State for this country? Yes. Please step over there. Round of applause, Ms. Chiambati. Secretary of State Chiambati. All right, we move over to the south now. This region is going to belong to Ms. Williams. Ms. Byrne. Ms. do you accept? Yes. Excellent job. Very good job. I was in college and I, I was finding nowhere to go. I couldn't find anything interesting. It seemed to be all a big game to me. It didn't make any sense at all. So I dropped out. Actually, I dropped out two or three times. So I dropped out and I'd work in a sheet metal shop in the summer and save my money and then buy a ticket and go to India. So I ended up roaming around the Himalayas and the foothills of the Himalayas, looking out and visiting different swamis and gurus and yogis. I had a fabulous time. And finally, the last time I came back, my mother said, just get a degree in something. Just finish it. You know, she understood that as an African-American at that time, I would need that particular um, tool to get further, to do whatever I wanted to do. It was necessary at the time, it seemed. And so I went back, kind of sadly, to the door of the registration office of the college. There was a sign on the door saying, experimental program in something. It was torn off at the back of the sign. I didn't know what it was in, but I saw the word experimental. I said, that's for me. That's the kind of guy. <laughs> so I marched in. I said, I want to register for that program, the experimental one, whatever it is. It could have been dentistry, you know, <laughs> but it turned out to be education, strangely enough. Before we start, I'm going to share with you what I'll start at the beginning of every game session. A little bit from Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And of course, Sun Tzu is a general who's talking about basically how not to fight, and if you must fight, how to get it done quickly with the least amount of damage and suffering to the people. He's 2,500 years old. So Sun Tzu's first two quotes, and these quotes are contradictory. Here they are. The first one is, he says, there is no instance of a country having benefited from prolonged war. Uh, you might have read about some things in the news along this line, too, whether things have gone on too long in certain parts of the world and warfare now. Second quote from Sun Tzu, it is only one who is thoroughly acquainted with the evils of war that can thoroughly understand the profitable way of carrying it on. Arms dealers, listen carefully. World Peace Game is serious. You're actually getting taught something and yeah. how to take care of the world. See, Mr. Hunter is doing that because he says his time has messed up a lot. Yeah. And the he's trying generation. to tell us how to fix that problem. 
We're going to start now outlining the crisis that you're going to be faced with. Here's the situation. You are a brand new cabinet that is inheriting a situation before you came to office that left the world in this state. This is what you step up into office and face the first day you come into office. It's not your fault, but there it is in front of you. You've got to decide what to do about it. Your predecessors, those who came before you in office, caused this problem. You've got to deal with it. Okay. Okay, we have regular army and mercenary troops from Linderland attacking on this island. An attack has been launched and two attack aircraft squadron from Linderland are also headed to the island along with ships. F-Strong wants to start charging a usage fee of $10 million per day for the use of its island. It wants to pay for a space station project it's, conduct it's building up here. They need the money. The ethnic Kajazians have taken over a critical oil refinery. They threaten you, Ms. Williams, and your cabinet to destroy the refinery complex if they are challenged. The Kajaz people want to establish a religious homeland for themselves in this area, this area right where a lot of your oil reserves are. Suddenly a volcanic eruption occurs, oh my, right here. Uh, Isania has two game days to evacuate resources and troops from the southern end of this country, which means from this city down or lose everything here. Endangered species. Oh, this is a great one. I love this one. Okay. Oil is just discovered on a remote... To lock one's thinking, to select a perspective and to lock yourself into it is very hazardous, actually. So this idea of being in the, in the unknown not knowing exactly what the facts or truth is, is something we really have to want to admit what nature and what reality is, is, is the way things are. We like to have very set situations that we can uh, enjoy and feel comfortable about and not have fear and have security, but life is much bigger than that. And so I want them, without being frightened, to be able to understand the vastness of it and to be able to learn to swim in that vastness comfortable. So we try and strip away the conventional thinking. There has to be a way we can use this. We have to figure that out. We can use this volcano, use this eruption to make something good happen. We have started a counterattack and sending its air force. Oh god. If you look on the World Peace K map, he has like that much oil. So does Caden. And Caden's our complete ally. And we can also get some oil. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. seconds please. Cabinets please reconvene. We're going to start and commence our first session the first day of the World Peace Game. First game day is about to start. Okay, thank you. Because I have such confidence in you, I'm going to do something I've never done before. What? The game has three new crises in it. I've never put new crises in once the game has started. These are crises concerning water rights. One of the big problems in the world today is people having enough clean water for whatever they need, drinking and washing and so forth. It's a big problem. So when the new crises come at the end of the long crisis list, you're going to see some new problems. And guys, I really think they're going to be almost impossible to get out of. 
but I really have confidence you're going to be able to do it. I don't know why I think you can, because I would never do this if I didn't think you could, but I don't know how you're going to do it. I cannot imagine. So good luck to you. Also, you've got people on the no. bridge. You can't leave them in the sky. Go forward or backwards. No, they, they want to go forward because it's going to I speak for the people of Asania. We would like to make alliances with Linderland. This document hereby states and affirms the rightful and lawful ownership to this uninhabited territory located off the north shore of Estron. If we could do that, we'd be going to but we have to be out you are enemies if we really want to do that. Our only enemies, basically, the heaviest enemies we have were each other. I am Prime Minister Williams on behalf of the people of Linderland. We have decided to... Um, to make an ally with Iceania and become one big country. What about the oil spill? You still got to negotiate that because you're not ready to do it unless you're going to pay for it yourself now. I think we're going to pay for it ourselves. Our comptroller, deduct that from your budget, please. What is the cost of the oil spill cleanup? I think the game itself has evolved to such a point. Uh, and of course, I evolved it, but the students really are the motor, the engine that drives the evolution of this thing. This fourth grade group, I would, I would uh, put close to my high school students who play some of the, some of the high school classes who play this game, uh, because of the diverse considerations they have to make simultaneously quickly. That that rapidity of of, of consequence considerations is the thing that just really excites me every time I see it happen. My mother was born in Richmond, Virginia. She taught at a number of schools in that segregated system, and finally she was posted to the school that was near, near our house. And as I was graduating from third grade going to fourth, she was posted to the fourth grade. It was a very quiet year, is what I remember. I didn't really make one false step, and I never called her Miss Hunter. I didn't know what to call her, so I would sort of sidle up to her desk and say, Mom, can I be excused for a while? Hopefully nobody heard me. She was a very loving teacher, very quiet. Her way was very soothing and quiet. Basically, and this is correlated with things I learned in China and Japan years later, in, in um, Buddhist monasteries. My mother, although she wasn't a Buddhist, had a way of approaching things that was, I, I would call it now, empty. There was so much space in her approach that she allowed so much to be, so much to happen, that I would often have to come to my own conclusion I might ask her what is the best thing, and she would turn me back in on myself somehow. She would, of course, give guidance where necessary, but it would often be a kind of a thing where I'd have to really think of the answer myself. And I think maybe that was one of the largest influences, that there was a space, almost a silence that was allowed, where I'd have to dig deeper myself. And that, of course, probably carried into my teaching and was reinforced by my experiences in Japan and China. That uh, the emptiness can be as valuable as the fullness of things.
Sun Tzu says, leadership is a matter of intelligence, trustworthiness, humaneness, courage, and sternness. That's what leadership is. He puts sternness in there as a leader. Okay, we'll start then with Prime Minister Cohn. Will you stand and say who you speak on behalf of and let us hear your declaration, I speak sir. on behalf of Paxland and the Nins. This is part of the Nins. And the Nins are part of Paxland. So this is basically owned by Paxland. Are you saying Paxland now owns part of Isania? Is what you're claiming, sir. Is that correct? I am Prime Minister Thompson of Isania. I did not offer it to Paxland. I offered it to Stefan as a homeland, which had no part of Paxland at all. I offered it as a, we would not, we'd offer it as he could have land as a homeland, but I did not offer it to Paxland. I offered it to Stefan. I offered it to the men's leader only. It was, I did not offer it to Paxland, right. which I'm trying to explain. Can, can we work this out in negotiation time? You might want to call a UN mediator in on yeah, this. Yeah, I would like to do that because that is false information that I told everyone. Okay. I'd like you to know what they said was all false. All right, thank you, Ms. Thompson. I we appreciate it. Well, interestingly, it, it boils down to probably what it does to for adults, and that is this uh, the personality conflicts. Uh, kids who are working with uh, perceptions of themselves as being all right all the time and kids who uh, develop a, a anger or conflict with another kid personally about something they did, and they're trying to step back and see the bigger picture beyond their own feelings about the picture. And that, that is a struggle. I think we're seeing some of the kids have a hard time still uh, understanding or coming to understand that they themselves are part of the problem and part of the solution as well. They might see it it's all as external to themselves. It's your choice. If, you, if you're going to do it with you or if you're going to share it with both me and Dan. It's up to you. You have to allow them to be human. You have to allow them to feel what they're feeling and, and to go through it. So I support that. And what I do sometimes is I call it, I'm the firefighter. I go out and put out little fires between during the negotiation sessions if there's a little overheating here and there. They say I can't withdraw that because I'm withdrawing no, and going no, to What did the UN say? They said it was fine, but they say I can't withdraw no, the No, the UN answer. says it's fine, it's fine. However, Amelia, there are consequences. Think about the consequences. Amelia, Amelia, this is good, this is good. This is very good. This is very good. This is very good. This is very good. You do what you want to do. The UN sanctions it, you're okay. Think of the consequences and deal with them in a good way. My goodness, Amelia. What? It's a bad thing. 
Isabella became the rebel leader. Isabella didn't want to, so Stefan became the rebel leader. I want it to be so thrilling that they don't want to do without it, but so challenging that they almost can't do it. And to have the two contrasts, have those two opposite things working together, it's for me that kind of tension is what I think is where learning occurs. They have that love and fear, and that learning just just torques on that kind of mismatch. And that seems to be what's happening in this game. Twenty million paying for you, Caden. Line up at the door, please. We are done for the day. country while trying to make peace. I think they learn how better to try to figure out how not to have war, but how to figure out how to avoid it and to figure it out by talking to people. Someone who really thinks things through, not someone who immediately says something. It's pretty hard because you have to set an example, not just for your country, for everyone. And, well, also, sometimes people don't like you, and then you've got to change rapidly. And if somebody is going, is threatening to attack, threaten them back. And because you need to protect your country, but not destroy it. But that's not what I'm trying to do. Okay, Maddie. I need to tear the ground. I have to. I like, can I just have to? Okay, I just want to. I need that land. That contains most of our resources. We don't have any ICBs. Caden, he has a double role. He's a prime minister of the largest, richest nation on in the World Peace Game. But he's also what we call a confusion agent. Confusion agent is a, a saboteur. His job is basically to create uh, disinformation. Uh, ambiguities, irrelevancies in his conversations, negotiations. He's playing a dual role and he has to do that so subtly he's not detected. But in doing so he causes other people to have to think more deeply. So hopefully it's forcing uh, expanded, extended thinking in everyone. Nina. Wait, Mr. Yeah. Let two um, 
mercenary attack us, our captain. Got it. Got it. Very good. All right. Okay, we're going to call this pretty quick. I have Who's a, that? I have news for you. Who's that? You're about to find out. Who's that? Are they going to kill them? You're about to find out. Who are they? Mercenaries. You're going to find out shortly. They came in overnight. Have a seat. David, did you send mercenary troops on my island? Okay. I will say that the saboteur, whoever he or she is, has done a fantastic job so far because we have not even had a suspicion really come up. There's been no accusation. There's been nothing going on that uh, anybody seems to be wise to the activities of that person. So a very nice job, saboteur, whoever you are, confusion agent, doing a really lovely job because nobody has a clue as to what you're up to. All right, we're going to start now with the turn from Isenia. Prime Minister Thompson. First of all, I would like to make an announcement. For whoever those missionary troops are, you need to move them now. I will find out who you are, and I will do whatever I can to get them out. I am not kidding. I am not going to be easy on this. I will do whatever I can. I don't care. If I find out who you are, I will go to your country, and I don't know what I'll do, but I, it won't be very pretty. <laughs> I'd like to accuse Marcus of being the sabotage. Mr. Johnson, would you stand accused, please? The president of the World Bank has been accused of confusion agent activities. The president of the World Bank, Mr. Johnson, you stand accused of saboteur activities. Ms. Williams and Ms. Hazard. Would you like to present some evidence? The one uh, biggest piece of evidence that we found was we had witnesses, two eyewitnesses, that Marcus mysteriously brought, went over and brought 4,000 mercenary troops and sent them in Isania. Uh, this has to be proof. Gailey has given me a promise that he did go and buy those troops secretly. And I believe they are his. And the reason I believe he's a saboteur, I believe he's trying to arm the World Bank and try to get everyone mixed up. I think that Marcus is just doing this to make everybody confused and to make other people yell at countries. Mr. Johnson, would you please stand? We're going to ask directly, Mr. Johnson, are you or are you not the saboteur? I am not. Thank you. Oh. So that's a $50 million fine. We will pay the World Bank Wonderland for your false accusation. That was a good try. Lots of good evidence. I'm instructed by a third party to remove the troops from Isania. They're now leaving which is a cause for a celebration. Thank you. However, the troops have been redeployed for an attack on Linderland's capital. 2,000 troops here. You know I have 4,000 troops. And an attack on Epstron's capital. We have two attacks called. Makes me feel weird because whenever anybody thinks it's going to be like Morgan or... Hannah or anybody else, it makes, I kind of want to scream at them. I am the avatar. I grew up in uh, an area south of Richmond, Virginia, Chesterfield County. We were growing up in what was, I guess, the tail end of legal seg segregation in the area. So my school experience was all in a, a black or African-American school setting. Uh, the big change came when uh, integration was uh, allowed or brought to our area. And I was one of seven students that was uh, chosen at my elementary school to be the first uh, generation of students who would integrate or go to the formerly all-white school. 
So our job was uh, to become experiments, really. Experiments, and we didn't know what it meant. We were afraid. Uh, we'd heard, of course, about things that happened to other people in similar situations. But in my case, it turned out to be a very uh, beautiful experience, strange to say. I was expecting something to not be, not go well, but it turned out to be a very amazingly opening thing for all of us. Now, some of us didn't make it. Some turned back. Some uh, went under to the stress of the situation. And myself, people like me, I just kept going and going and going. <laughs> but still, I had experiences that were uh, gathered from that impetus that I could then share with others. And of course, the World Peace Game was part of that. Uh, it came about from those kind of broadening experiences all over. Together. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Ladies and gentlemen, let the World Peace Game session convene today. There will probably begin to be some changes or adjustments in the game, so be prepared for things to shift radically today. Okay, we know we don't hold on to things because things do change. Change is the name of our game. So be ready to roll with everything that happens today. Are you ready? Really? <laughs> Good luck. I wanted to announce that um, we're now hiring if people want to become an arms dealer. Arms dealers are increasing in the world. What does that mean for the world? What does that mean for world peace when we have more people with more weapons in the world? That's a huge force. Is this an attack? Ms. Burns, is he setting you up to take you over, or is he just warning you? What do you think? You think so? Yeah, I'm warning you. You think so? But if you... He's saying that. Does he mean that? United Nations Secretary General, do you have anything to add? I'd like to announce that Estron has officially um, had the ownership of the Orange Island. Estron awarding ownership of the Orange Island with the oil reserves to Estron. Now you've got mercenaries on your island where your sacred shrine is. And you're showing a lot of patience and restraint, but you are threatening to retaliate. They don't move them immediately. So whoever's, whoever they belong to has heard that message, I'm sure, loud and clear. I am Mr. Maddox from Lindelin, and I would like to um, do a coup. Attempt a coup? Attempt a coup. Call it, sir. Heads. Tails. Tails. I'm sorry, sir. You'll have to go into exile. Ms. Byrne remains Prime Minister, but that has set up a huge situation of consequences. I wonder what's going to happen because of that move. We initially just wanted to have problem solving occur, students to figure out problems and uh, come up with different unique solutions that work. But uh, I, of course, had spent a lot of time abroad in India and uh, looking at the nonviolent culture, the concept of ahimsa. And so I thought, is there some way we can sort of look at peace, world peace in the Gandhian tradition? Uh, somehow without using force and violence. And it may be even ludicrous to think of it today, but that was the idea we had then. And we're trying to still promote that kind of thinking in students. Wait a minute, what's the illegal operation? Well, not illegal, but they're kind of doing something that's not very smart. He's surrounding their oil and it's not turning it back on. Okay. I don't want to be a rebel. We shouldn't want to, we can make a treaty. We have toy trades. Fishing ships. She gave us all the money. We need to clean up the nuclear spill. Are they charging interest? Yeah. 
check and see. See if we can charge you any interest, you know, money to use the money. Another trade stealer. Uh, my trade stealer just quit. What? My trade stealer just quit. You mean he left the left the cabin? Yes. What are you gonna do about it? I have to find someone else. Okay. Can I like? We can recruit. Good what? luck to you. In every game, we see a, a, a moment where the whole group transitions into a higher gear. They all sort of just click into a different level of activity and engagement, and that happened today. There were some events, I think the, uh, the coup d'etat attempt and also the uh, arms dealers were pushing their products really <laughs> heavy today. So a lot of things were, were factors in that, that click that sort of happened when they all just went into high gear and you saw the engagement just deepen. And there were more consequences to consider, more people had to think on more levels at once and they were pushed to do it. It almost felt like time speeding up and, and it didn't of course, but it just felt the intensity in the room just went up uh, quite a bit. Mr. Hunter, he's a brain stretcher. My brain, when I come from his classroom, it just feels like a big, it's just like empty. If I shake my head around, I can feel it swishing. My, my brain, like, when I come back from his class, it feels like it's just jelly. learned so much. My I brain, know. it gets he squished us like jelly. He, he teaches us so much in a fun way. <laughs> he's a really good teacher, and he really... He makes you just have fun. And he always is challenging you, and he's giving. And it's not like it's not like a normal teacher. And some things in school I think are just so so easy. But when I get to go, Mr. Hunter, it's like it's really a challenge. Mr. Hunter really sometimes frustrates me. He when he, I say, "Can I do this?" and he says, "Anything can happen." But he never ever answers your question. <laughs> deliberately. He doesn't. He wants us to learn. And, he wants us to learn. And to then, questions. when you're a grown-up, you, no one will. You can't ask anybody, and they won't tell you what to do. You have to figure it out on yourself. Get your quest tag and sign it in. You can do that. Let's go. Here, rock and roll, guys. The Don't throw it. The world's cool and evil. Oh, cool and evil, thank you. Yeah. You got this? No, I haven't. Okay, well, I'm surprised. Who are you selling to? Who's buying this stuff? Like? This session of the World Peace Game is convening. We have a proposal on the table. The United Nations will have to weigh in on this. Secretary of State Emory and Prime Minister Thompson approached me yesterday about global warming. They insisted we had to have a crisis involving global warming. We've never done it before, but of course the world's never been in that situation where we were aware of it before. It can be solved, just like global warming can be dealt with in the real world, but you have to decide to do it and do it today if you do. They came to me yesterday, uh, one of the prime ministers, one of the secretary of states, and said, Mr. Hunter, we've got to put global warming into the game. And I, I was, uh, we usually don't put crises in the game once we start, but they talked me into it. They really pleaded their case and said, you know, we've got to deal with it. This is the way things are in the world. Let's, let's, let's try the crisis. We can handle it. The NEN scientists have developed the world's first fuel-efficient use of hydrogen. It can now cost only pennies per gallon to produce cheap hydrogen, 
In other words, fossil fuels, which fuel current transportation cars and your armor brigades and aircraft here, by the way, can now be replaced. If the NIN production facilities and factories can be duplicated in every country at once, it would take three game days. You'd have to do it within three game days for this to work. Halfway measures, some countries doing it, others not doing it, will not work. Everybody has to do it. The plants can only be licensed from the NINs. You'll have to talk to Mr. Norling if you want this technology. The cost to build and start up a single plant is $20 billion. Fifteen plants per country are required if global warming is to be tackled realistically. If you do nothing, all countries would lose an unknown amount. Ms. Hickman would decide the amount, but certainly in the hundreds of billions of dollars due to global warming by the end of the game. All right, we're going into negotiation as of now. Marcus, I have a question. Will you, will you, move up, will, will you pay for Katie's, will you pay for, for any um, implants to help stop global warming? Because if you don't, or nobody does, then, then everybody's going to die. And everybody's going to die. That means you're dead. Took a huge sacrifice and a lot of um, cooperative action that I wasn't expecting them to be able to quite jump to so quickly. They had to sacrifice some of their budgets to do a huge percentage of their budgets to actually tackle it, as it would probably be the case in the real world. That, uh, the major powers would have to make that financial and economic uh, sacrifice or change to have it happen. But they did do it, and they were excited and enthused to do it. Uh, before we start negotiations, I'm afraid there is one more crisis. <laughs> I'm instructed by a third party. <laughs> I'm instructed by a third party. I'm pulling these 4,000 mercenaries who are attacking the Paxan capital off. They're now attacking the Nin Shrine. Okay, I, I just killed those people. I was already already. Remember what Sun Tzu has told you. You do not have to fight to win every battle. Are you smart enough to know how to do that? You are but you can also ignore your own knowledge if you want to. Prime Minister Cohn's turn from Paxland. Prime Minister Cohn, identify yourself and who you speak on behalf of. I am Prime Minister Cohn, and I speak on behalf of the people of Paxland. And we're sort of upset at the other countries who have been attacked by these mercenaries not to do anything about them, but we're going to do something. We're going to attack. We're going to attack the mercenaries. mercenaries. Is that the best way to deal with it, sir? Right now, we're sick of attacks. All right. You calling air 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 strikes or military ground ground cover? Ground cover. Okay. Call your target, please. These four mercenaries. You said we can do all four. Two small if you this is 1,000 troops, so you're risking. If your troops lose, of course, you will have to write a letter to their parents. United Nations observer. Call it, please. Call it, sir. Um, Tails. Tails it is? Yes! Sorry, the mercenary attack is over. They have done the do a job. Round yes! of applause. Yes! David risked war to gain peace. Now, before, uh, the before the Prime Minister continues, think about whether his actions were right or not. Was that a good thing he did or not? Lives were lost. They weren't his people, but lives were lost. We've really had enough of people attacking. I mean, we've been lucky. I mean, the time, now I'm feeling really weird because I'm living what Sun Tzu said one week. 
One week he said, those who go into battle and win and will want to go back. And those who lose in battle will want to go back and win. And so I've been winning battles, so I'm sort of going into battles. More battles. And I think it's sort of weird to be living what Sun Tzu said. Okay, that's also Linderland too, so you're, they have an alliance now, so you're going to attack really both countries with one blow. Three countries. Three countries. This, then, and this. So you have attacked all three. What, what do you Cap want? Your, well, your own okay. capital? Wait. Well, what's the weakest part of the country? Um, weakest part would be over there where the resources are in their tax land. There's no troops over there. You've got Air Force over there, but that's all. What's the strongest? Over here, you've got all these troops on their coast. And you want 3,000 on their Six thousand. Six, that's nine altogether. So yeah. three here, six there. Yeah. What do you do then politically? Do you want to take over the country? Do you want to declare a state? What do you want to do? Take over the country. All right. You might want to think about it too and let me know something different during negotiation times if you can. Okay. So you would take over the country if you do succeed. Yeah, okay? if I do. Right, good. Okay, you got to go. I got to go. So I'll give you a minute to get back upstairs. Okay. Whoa. Straight to it. Quest tag, let's go, okay? Quest tags are ready. Please pick them up. Let's rock and roll. Let's convene this session of the World Peace Game. We're very faithfully close to solving all the world's problems. I want to commend you first off on solving global warming last week. The adults haven't done that. And you folks simply made the commitment to do it. You thought as Stuart Brand says, and the long now. So we're looking at the long now today, but in a very short time. Let's start with a reading from Sun Tzu's The Art of War, basically how to stay out of it. He says, therefore, what restrains competitors, we all know what competitors are, people against you. Therefore, what restrains competitors is the fear of harm. What keeps competitors busy is having them work. What motivates competitors is profit, making profit. He says, wear enemies out by keeping them busy and not letting them rest, but you have to have done your own work before you can do this. This work means developing a strong militia, a military, a rich nation, a harmonious society, and an orderly way of life. Think about what Sun Tzu is suggesting here for just a minute. Okay, Ms. Hamilton, would you stand please give us an assessment of our crisis situation right now? We have one crisis left. It is the, the saboteur um, who is sending troops all over the place just attacking okay. and making everything confusing. All right, very good. What if you figure out who the person who's controlling those mercenaries is? Would they stop? Yes, if you did unmask that person, it would have to stop. That's the way the game is played, yes. Okay. United Nations, you always can speak before anyone's turn. So, Ms. Rodriguez, do you have anything, uh, Secretary General Rodriguez? I think it's Caden. You think it's Mr. Would you stand, please? Prime Minister Sullivan. All right, can you present your evidence against Mr. Sullivan? Why is he the saboteur? Obviously, all these attacks he's been trying to do, it obviously is costing him money, and he's the 
one of the richest people. And no, he's not. He's not anymore, he's just, but he's one of them. He has he can't he's not afraid to attack because he has nuclear weapons. He has he just has all these things. He does it's not gonna he doesn't matter to him if he gets attacked because he can just attack so strongly right back. He was seen by two parties. Do you want to mention names? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> no that he was seen telling Mr. Hunter where to move those mercenary troops into Isania's capital. Excuse me, excuse me, sir, sir. I also, I heard it when you were moving those troops saying, pointing Isania going like that and saying, put right, them there. You. That's evidence. All right, thank you. We'll now hear the case for Mr. Sullivan. Is there anybody who would like to speak on his behalf? All right, Ms. Emery, since you're from his country, could you identify yourself, please, and tell us why I'm he is Ms. not? I'm Ms. Emery, and I'm his Secretary of State. I do not think it's Caden because with all the things that he's done, he's always asked if it's us, his team, if it's okay. All right. Mr. Um, uh, Norris, would you stand, please, I identify yourself? Mr. Norris, the Defense Minister of Isania. And why would he attack his own capital? Excuse me, United Nations, you have one opportunity before we actually vote to withdraw your accusation if your mind has been changed. You can consult with your other deputies as, if you, as well if you wish. Ms. Griffin, Ms. Uh, Tauchi. Fate hangs in the balance here right now. We'll see what happens. Ms. Rodriguez, would you stand and make your decision known, please? I don't think it is him. So you're going to withdraw your accusation? Yeah. Thank you. All right. Very nice job. Yes. I wanted to know if it was. <laughs> well, we'll never know now. That case is closed. We'll move on. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the adults in the world have the same problem. The insurgents around the world are small armies that have their own allegiances, can attack here, can attack there. We might not know who they are. We might not even know why they're doing this. How do we deal with this problem? The adults have not figured it out. Can you do it today? Is combat the best way to do it? Is it the only way to do it? Think about it and see what you can do. Why you'll get more people to help? We can't do this all by ourselves. We have to protect the capital. We have to really attack it. We know what we're doing. We're going to make an accusation if it's wrong, and then we're going to blow them up. There are moments when I stand at a certain place in my room and I look out the window. And it just occurs to me, and did during the game too, that this is something that my mother did uh, and had done decades ago. She has stood in a room like this, with a, surrounded by young children, and she has looked out the window, and she's paused, and she's allowed the experience to just be and to appreciate it. I know she had, I know what kind of person she was, and for me to be standing in a spot like that to in my mind, go through the same gesture, to have the same feeling. It was like a direct connection, it felt like. It felt like there was no separation, that she hasn't gone. You know, she passed away, but it felt like she's right here, and I'm just a continuation of her, her gesture, really. I'm one of her teaching gestures. That's what it felt like to me. I'm instructed to take 2,000 troops and for some reason go after this lost capital that was taken down by the mercenaries. The mercenaries now have four, five, six, seven thousand troops in that area. For some reason the Isanian capital seems to be important to this person or these people. I don't know why. They have not declared an attack but they have moved troops heavily, 
heavy armed forces into that area, even after taking over the capital, and even after being nearly surrounded by a navy and having a tank battalion on the way and having air cover over them, they're still going after that land. I don't know why. Defense Ministers, you're calling it? Yes, Taylor. Right, here we go. United Nations Observer. That's a major defeat. Remove 6,000 troops from the board, please. Everybody be seated. Prime Minister, what further actions do you have? You want to start on your letter now. You want to start on your letter now. Ms. Thompson, can I have that uh, wand, please? Dear parents, I'm sad to inform you that while covering our capital, your sons and daughters were killed. I would not have done. I would have done anything for this not to happen. But I would like to say that you are true. They are true heroes, and they died in honor. For it takes a true hero to die for the country. From Prime Minister Thompson. In a way, it's kind of a fatalistic approach. I think allowing all this chaos in the game is is a way to peace. That doesn't make very much sense. But to deny the chaos of reality doesn't make sense either. So basically, I'm trying to teach acceptance of reality, I think. And my underlying belief, my underlying hope is that out of that or within that, at the fundamental level of that, there is a goodness, a compassion, and a peacefulness. That's just my belief about human nature, about life itself. All right, Ms. Griffin, who is your accusation against? Kaden. Mr. Sullivan, please Kaden. stand up. Second time around, accused again. We don't have double jeopardy here. I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry. We got to carry on with our trial. Everything stops when we have a trial. Let's not have any evidence. We've already had enough evidence. Can we just get to the point? We went through a whole trial already. Can we just get to the point? Okay, let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and have our vote. How many do believe Mr. Sullivan is indeed the saboteur? Raise your hand, please. You in? Let's have a count. Official count, please. Official count. Hands up if you believe he is indeed the saboteur. <laughs> Accused twice. All right. UN, what's our number? 16. All right. Hands down. Thank you. Hands up for those who believe Mr. Sullivan is innocent of the charge and is not indeed the saboteur. <laughs> 13. 13. So very close. Very close. We're going to now have to ask Mr. Sullivan, are you or are you not the saboteur? I am. Yeah. Okay. Everybody, In in view of all the crises being solved, and in in view of of everyone's asset value being over 100 billion, I hereby declare this world peace game won. I hope that they never need me again, that I put myself out of a job, that they have everything that they could possibly have gotten from this experience, from me, from my influence, whatever it might have been, and that they take away every tool 
every creative thinking tool, every critical thinking tool they can, and they have a confidence that they can solve any problem, they can deal with anything. When I look at things like the game and what happened with these kids, as I said to them today, if just one of you is in position to leverage something good for the world, just one of you is in that kind of position, that can make all the difference. And if you picked up a tool from this game, a thinking tool or critical thinking skill that helps you do that, you may save us all. And that's what I'm naively hoping might happen. For more information about this film, John Hunter, and the World Peace Game, please visit rosaliafilms.com and worldpeacegame.org. Funding for this film is provided in part by the Martin Institute for Teaching Excellence, offering professional development opportunities for teachers. Connect, educate, innovate. Wow. <laughs> I know that John Hunter has um, been a consultant at the Pentagon, and I think we might all agree that we need to send him to Washington right now. <laughs> They need him. So it's, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce John Hunter, Chris Farina, and uh, Lionel Foster, who is a member of the Pratt Contemporaries. He's a Baltimorean, and he's now working at the Urban Institute in Washington. And uh, it's actually Lionel is responsible for, um, for our inviting John and Chris here this evening and for showing the film, because he sent me an email this summer and said, um, we need to bring these guys to Baltimore. So Lionel is <laughs> So we're going to, Lionel's going to moderate this conversation and we'll have uh, a chance for you to ask some questions and, and join in the conversation a bit later. All right, good evening, can you hear me? can't hear myself, but that's fine. Uh, so my first question, well actually, um, you know, I was, as I was watching this, I was struck, uh, someone already coined the term, are you smarter than a fifth grader? But I guess John made us ask, are we wiser than a fourth grader? <laughs> and and I, I think that's remarkable. So my, my first question is for John, um, do you make children cry? <laughs> no, they make me cry. <laughs> Uh, you know, Lionel, they, they uh, break my heart every time we play this game. 
because I give the game to them, it's out of my control. And they make decisions that go against everything I think is good sense. And I find out I'm often wrong. <laughs> so what I've learned to do is, in what I think is wisdom on my part, is to stop and allow the children to fully play out whatever scenario they have in mind. And often I find they are wiser than I would have been. And so for me to stop the educational process by saying, here's the correct answer, I've found through experiences the, the wrong thing to do for me. So to allow them to fully be themselves, to fully be human, to go through it and come out the other side, I think deepens their learning experience. And I just facilitate it, really. So yeah, they are wiser than I am. You go into much more detail about this in the book, but can you talk about how you developed the game? Uh, the game really started uh, in 1978 in uh, an inner city, uh, creative, gifted high school in Richmond, Virginia. And I say that, uh, I'm going to get to it, Tracy. I say that <clears throat> often I'm standing on the shoulders of my teachers, and this is why I'm here and how I can even exist, really. So many people made such sacrifice and effort just for me to survive and be here. So I've stood on their shoulders, but now, because of the work by filmmaker Chris Farina and this film, and the children who played the game for 35 years, I'm standing on the work of those children. I'm standing on their shoulders. And I'm so honored tonight. It's emotional for me because a student who played in the first game in 1978 at Richmond Community High School is here tonight, and he has made such a success of himself. Tracy Brown, would you stand up, please? No, no, no. Oh, there's Doreen is here. Dora Daniels and is that Lawrence? You know, <laughs> you know, Baltimore has felt like home, but now I know why. <laughs> this is incredible. These young people. This is our hope. This is my dream. You know, you never know when they leave you what's going to happen, but look how they turned out. I know Trace is in D.C. in educational policy. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> and Dora, you've been all over the world. I know Africa and every. Laura, I, you're in some secret intelligence operation, I think. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> you know, you can imagine how I feel as a teacher. I didn't know they were going to be here. I had no idea. The effects of what you do as a teacher go so far, and now they're affecting me and everything we do. I'm standing on your shoulders. So thank you for that. So Chris, could you tell us how you met John and how this film came about? Um, it, it was really quite simple. Um, there was a mutual acquaintance who said that I should come into John's classroom. Um, and so I did go. I mean, we, we live in a small town, so it's not wasn't much of a stretch to go by. And I was just, it wasn't really the game for me. It was just the beauty of the relationship between a teacher and his students. And, and that's what really drew me. And, and that it had such an emotional effect to watch such a masterful teacher with engaged students. And I thought, you know, if I could just, if I could somehow capture what I see and feel and share that with others, then it'll be a successful film. So, so really, that was, in a way, I mean, that was as simple as it could be as far as the kernel of, of the beginning of it. Um, it. It took forever to make because of funding. I mean, it, this this wasn't really a funded film, so it was a you know independent. It took you know, even after we shot it, it took us several years before we could edit it because of funding issues. 
but it always stayed with me was that that image of John with his children and the the sense of even though he he talks about himself just being a facilitator, he really does set a a tone of compassion and love and respect and humor, and he allows these kids to feel really safe as they as they fail and as they learn from the failure, as they collaborate with each other and and take risk in order to try to solve these really difficult problems. And and so just to capture that sense of a a masterful guide allowing children to learn was just it was you know at that point I had just a 2-year-old and a baby on the way, so so I didn't know that much about education, but I, I was really uh just absolutely moved by that relationship and thought that it should be paid homage to. So John, I know you're a gifted educator. Please, go ahead. <laughs> John, I know you're a gifted education teacher. Do kids need to be gifted, advanced, accelerated to play this game? Aren't they all? <laughs> you know, the, the definition for gifted education has changed over the three decades I've been in the business. It used to be you take a test, and you'd pass that test, you were gifted, and you didn't, you weren't, and you never would be. But uh, through the pioneering work of Carol Tomlinson at the University of Virginia and Joe Renzulli at the University of Connecticut now, the definition has been broadened to sort of sound like anyone could be gifted or show gifted behaviors under any circumstances at any time. So we don't know what giftedness really is or when it might happen or who might be, so we've got to allow that access to every student in the building. So whereas when I first started, I saw maybe oh, two or three percent of the student population in any school, now I see almost 50 or 60 percent of an entire school. They come through my room as a pullout teacher. I'm not a regular classroom teacher. So that definition has broadened the door, and we're trying to now realize and accept that we have so much of a vast resource in children who we might ordinarily not suspect or write off or just not support. You know, anyone could save us, anyone. We don't know how they're going to turn out, but we have to act as if they all could be the answer we've been hoping for. I know the game that you use now is not the same iteration that you created in 1978. Can you talk about some of the things you learned along the way and how the game has changed? <laughs> well, I see Tracy shaking his head. No, it was not. <laughs> uh, we, we didn't have the Art of, Art of War text back then. We didn't have a saboteur. I think Tracy and Dora and Laura played on a four-by-five piece of plywood on the floor, one level only. So it's evolved, and the students really have evolved it over time. So this, this has not been a static uh, experiment, but I did not know how it should be. I still don't know how it should be. I don't know how to win the game. I think they're going to fail, and they fail every time at first massively. The game is designed to do that, and there's nothing I can do to save them or help them because I don't know the answers. But collectively and collaboratively, they reach a depth of understanding and desperation that they realize we must save each other. We have to help each other. And that spontaneous compassion really does arise every time we play with every type of student, every group of, of students I played with. And so it's just given me tremendous optimism and hope to see that when they're in the depths of the worst possible human, political, military, and economic so, uh, situations, they find a way, a practical, reasonable way to come out. And I think, and I'm so humble, that's why the, the Chris's film was uh, shown at the United Nations uh, to a captive audience really who, who really understood 
you know, what we're playing at, these folks are living. And Chris and I were invited to the Pentagon a couple of times. And my students actually were invited to the Pentagon, I have to say. And that was a most moving experience. They had a half-hour meeting with Defense Secretary then Leon Panetta, who talked with them about policy and strategy. He didn't have a photo op. This was a very serious meeting. They spent the morning with two, three, and four-star generals from every branch of the service being asked questions. How do you handle insurgents? What do you do about a supply chain when the shipping lanes are opening up due to global warming? And the students, the nine-year-olds, had a conversation peer-to-peer with them because they had lived through it. They had lived through it, and I couldn't design that experience. I was in awe. It's a surreal. Chris and I were just stunned. You know, the children are, are leading the way, talking with some of the most powerful military people in the world who said, we are hurting, we are suffering. We will even ask your children if they have any ways to help us avoid war. Now, we were surprised. We thought it was a faceless, monolithic war machine. And they admitted to suffering. And they asked for help, even from two small-town guys and a room full of children. So it's quite a moving thing. Chris, I was really impressed that, um, for the most part, you seemed just like a, a fly on the wall. The kids didn't stare, you know, uh, deer-eyed into the camera. How, how did you do that? You know, I, I really attribute that to John and the exercise, to be honest. Um, for, I mean, I, I spent a year watching the game with a previous class, so I, I kind of had some level of, of how it worked. Um, but more than anything, is a perfect example. When we went in, I knew that the first couple days were very much about explanation. So I knew that in that sense, the kids weren't really going to take control of, of this experience just yet. So with the camera person, I was like, we can stay on the tripod, we can focus on John, and we can allow these children to get used to us. Ten minutes in, uh, I said, we don't have to worry about this. These kids are so focused on John, and they're so focused on this game, because they are just just waiting, dying to work on this thing, that, that we were just like, get out of the way, we got work to do. <laughs> and that literally was how, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't that we were trying to hide in any way, we were right in the midst of it, but those kids were serious about what they had to do, and, and so they didn't focus on the camera watching them. It was really, it was a priceless experience for a documentary filmmaker to have a, a subject that is ignoring you. <laughs> so. Um, I sometimes say that education is uh, maybe is highly regulated, only a little less regulated maybe than nuclear energy. So I was I'm amazed by the the alternative, the experiential learning that happens with the game. So John, can you talk about how the game does or does not fit into any curriculum that the school might have? Whether there have been conflicts, how how does it mesh with the rest of what they're learning? Well, yeah, I've had the luxury, I have to admit, of being sort of outside the box from the first being in gifted education. When I lost that label and just became an interdisciplinary learning specialist, <laughs> which kind of meant you can do anything, <laughs> um, the door opened really a bit. Um, I've always thought to have curriculum that, of course, met standards or addressed standards. It wasn't even a conscious effort. Most teachers, I think, are trained well enough to know that certain things are necessary and minimum and basic, and you have to have those in place, and they build it in automatically. Uh, the strictures we have now, which are so intense, are, are giving teachers a very difficult time. I mean, I won't belabor that. 
but I'm sure you understand what, what the situation is. I've simply just been myself, and when I couldn't be myself or I found a, an administrator who I did not have the trust of, I resigned. And I've resigned four or five times in my career. But for the most part, I've been tremendously supported. And I would say that for, for me to be a successful teacher in my career, it has required a visionary, trusting, caring leadership. Without a caring, trusting administrator, principal, superintendent, I could not have survived. And fortunately, I've had that often enough, uh, that partnership where I can turn my back on the administrator and teach and not feel afraid, not be worried, and know that I'm protected. That kind of support is invaluable for teachers to be their best, I think. And I've been fortunate to have that. So they've simply said to me, as my, my current principal, Michelle Kastner, she is a fierce protector of children. She says to her teachers in staff meeting, I hired you all, one by one, by hand. I know you. I know you know what to do. You're professionals. Do everything you can for these children. That's the whole purpose of being here. I trust you. I will support you. And that's all the leadership I can give you. And then she walks out of the room. It's an incredible moment for us as teachers to be told that. And she does that, that, that talk. She gives that lecture at our worst point. Usually mid-year at our benchmark test scores are not so good. We're 560 kids. I think we've been, uh, we're smaller in size now, but about 560 children, 60% uh, free and reduced lunch, 23 different languages and cultures in the school, uh, Title I reading. And even so, mid-year, our scores are abysmal, but even so, at the end of the year, scores are through the roof. And there's no technique or method that we use that does it. It's a relationship between the administrator and the teachers, the teachers and teachers, and the parents, relatives, and families, and the teacher and the child. And that seems to be the key everywhere I go. It doesn't matter what kind of system or policy is in place. You know, we've seen awful policies. We've seen great policies. And the great master teachers I've seen just say, Policies like weather, you know, sometimes you have to put on a heavy coat and sometimes you can go out and dance in the sunshine. But whatever the policy is, it's still a relationship between you and that child. And that's what it's about. So that's what I've, I've learned from them, I think. So, John, the book is built around the stories and experiences of, of different students. And you build your chapters and sub-chapters around that. Could you talk about the pro Was this your first book? Yeah. Could you talk about the process of you know, trying to translate decades of experience into, you know, 200-some pages that someone else could appreciate. Well, thank you for asking that. Uh, I, you know, I have to give credit to our, our editors and publishers, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in New York and Eamon Dolan, the editor. Brilliant, insightful young man. Uh, Cynthia uh, Cannell, my agent in New York, who found me after the TED Talk. I, you know, this is, none of this is my idea. I never had an intention of writing a book. I'm a school teacher, you know. I just teach. We're from a small town in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and we just do what we do the best we can. But because so many people have helped us, Chris Anderson and Ted and the folks at the Pentagon and the UN, and Chris, if it weren't for Chris, I would not be here. You know, I was thinking, well, this game I think is good, but, you know, I'm going to retire soon. I'll put it in the closet and forget about it. That's, that's the end of it. But Chris came along and, you know, putting an artist with a real insightful eye in with anyone. And it just made me appreciate, you know, that I got a chance as a teacher to share what I'm doing with the world because of a filmmaker. And what I've found in going around the world now is that there are so many good teachers. There's so much good teaching going on. 
they haven't had the luxury of having a camera in their classroom. So I encourage them and I, I share the message with you that there is so much good going on. You know, you hear one difficult situation in one piece of media that something's going wrong in a classroom, you get the idea that everything's falling apart. But we have seen so much good teaching the world over in the United States from coast to coast. So I'm very optimistic and because of a filmmaker, you can see an inkling of what might be even more beyond that. So Chris, could you tell us where the film has been screened up to now and, uh -huh. and going forward, how people can see it? Well, it's, it's, it's been a long, <laughs> a long ride. Um, it premiered, this was now in 2010, in uh, South by Southwest. And then it, for a year, I mean, this was, again, always under budgeted. I mean, it was six years before we were out at, or we, I <laughs> was out of debt. Um, it, 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 so it was, so it never had any sort of real press attention and it never had any marketing muscle behind it. So really what it, it did was, was played at a number of film festivals um, and kind of started receiving some attention because of the education. And, and in a way we were, I was so worried because it came out right after Waiting for Superman. And and I just thought, this is going to absolutely swamp this film. I mean, this is some little film about one classroom, one teacher, and you got this, you know, huge macro film that's talking about education in such a big way. I mean, as an example, we tried to get one of the, the I forget the name, but the post-education writer which, who was in Waiting for Superman, we tried to get him to come to a screening at Georgetown. Couldn't even get a response from him. And we realized, talking with some of the people who certainly know much more about education than I do, it was like, well, it's because you don't have any controversy. Most of the media is concerned about the adults and, and the arguments with, between the adults. They're not as concerned about children. So in that sense, I, I thought this would just stay pretty small. And then it took me a while to realize that Waiting for Superman was actually a blessing. Because what it did was it, it elevated the conversation about education but at least, and this is just my own personal opinion, but I don't feel like it gave any sort of real solutions. Mm. And the solution was, in many ways, like I think what it said at the end of the film was, it's simple, we know what matters, we just need good teaching. And I'm like, well, that's not simple. Uh, that's something that actually needs to be paid attention to. What is good teaching? And here, in many ways, we had the perfect example of good teaching. Right. And so in a way, So, so, sorry to go off. <laughs> I went off on a tangent there. So, 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 so it carried. It, it stayed. You know, it, it kind of stayed on a certain level, and, and we started doing kind of grassroots screenings. And then, through the trailer from the film, was presented to the TED folks, and they then chose um, John to be a TED speaker in 2011. And that really kind of blew it up. Um, and. and what was great was that we found a new, kind of an alternative. I mean, this is all, none of this was a plan. It was all a response to things that happened. But we found a, a kind of an alternative way. I mean, it no longer became kind of this example of independent film. Instead, it became this, this message through a pretty empowered community that wants to change the world. And, and John being such an incredible spokesperson for the teaching profession. And, and really, I think one of the blessings in the film, and it's not that I knew it going in, was the way that 
John and the way John's mother was such a role in this film. And because of that, it didn't, it wasn't just about one specific teacher, it was about teaching. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that really resonated with people. You know, a profession that is so beaten down by pretty much negative media attention, to see their profession honored and paid the respect that it really deserved, I think really struck a chord. And, and I think that's what kind of lifted the, the film and its presence. And then when you couple that with John's attention to Ted, that kind of changed the game. Um, drew us more, and then led to um, it being on public TV uh, as of, that started last year. So it's been shown around the country on public television. And then even better is we have an educational partner that John works with, that his work is, John's become a teacher of teachers. And it really is through the help and the partnership with the Martin Institute. And so they saw the film as a, as a basically they helped create the film as a tool for the teaching of mm, teachers okay. with John's guidance. And that really kind of ensured that it's no longer just a film that's here and then gone, but that it has staying power because it now creates impact with education. So we're really lucky in a way that the partners that we found and the people who are really supportive of John's work kind of stepped up and, and helped us. Nice. So Chris, you mentioned this national conversation, even controversially around education. You know, there's, and this question is going to be for John, by the way. So there's. Uh, you know, charter schools versus traditional public schools. There's standardized testing, teaching to the test. There's, uh, you know, common core curriculum versus something different. Are, but are we even having the right conversation about education? I see what your kids are doing in the classroom and it looks so different from what I did when I grew up. Are we, we're saying a lot about education, but are, are we having the right conversation? Um. You know, I'm uh, a small town school teacher, and I have a limited perspective. You know, I, I know who I am. I don't know if I can address such a huge issue uh, in, in any kind of definitive way. I'm just a, a single teacher. But I can say from my experience that I've understood that teachers know what works. They are the experts. I was thinking the other day, you know, when you have neuros neurosurgeons, they are regulated and judged and, and uh, monitored by other neurosurgeons. But you know, in education we have teachers, and I don't know if teachers design policy. I know it's often designed for teachers by folks who are not educators. Not a criticism, just an observation. But I think if teachers were given a greater hand, of course, in doing what they know how to do best, and designing curriculum the way they know works for children, the way that's supported by current brain research in young children, child development, and so forth, I think we'd have a better shot at doing it even better. Uh, not to say we're not doing our best or doing well now, but I think um, in my school, I see the teachers decide policy. And I think the policy work in education works and children learn in such an exciting way because those engaged in it, those who are invested in it directly, have some say. They have some control over their uh, situation and environment to make the choices that they're trained to make well. Uh, I, I really can't say more. There's so much going on, mm -hmm. so many nuances. But I would say that the relationship between the teachers and the student individually and singularly, singularly is, is, has always been the greatest thing in teaching for me, one-to-one, -one. you know, knowing that person intimately and understanding who they are, what their passion is, 
what they care about, what they wish for themselves, even if it's not apparent or they're not forthcoming immediately, but persistently being available to learn that from them and then respecting it and then bringing it forward and embedding it, wrapping it in the curriculum so that the curriculum becomes infused with what they care about and what they love, and then the curriculum is driven by their love and passion. How can they fail to learn what you're teaching when it's from their hearts that the curriculum has come? And so I think I find that excitement when they feel empowered and respected. And I have a classroom of 25 or 30 co-teachers, co-designers. You know, it's not a teacher and student. I have to respect them. I mean, a third grader comes in and says, Mr. Hunter, I know all about quantum physics. <laughs> well, I don't, so <laughs> I listen. You know? So whatever it might be, you know, they're individuals that should be respected. And they become your friends. They become your partners in this learning adventure. And when we all feel like it's a partnership and we're all, we all have a say in it, we're invested in it, and we have control over our own learning as students, it, it becomes so exciting. Even for me as a teacher, I'm so excited that they're excited. Yeah. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then we'll open it up to a few questions from the audience. So if you, there's something you're dying to ask, uh, you can formulate that. And um, so my last question for now for you is, uh, John, you, in the book, you mentioned that um, your, your game, you didn't phrase it this way, but I will, your game inspired um, other educators to, um, I think, create games of their own or, or use some of your methods. Could you talk about some of the things that other educators are doing? Uh, the Martin Institute for Teaching Excellence in Memphis, Tennessee, our partner uh, Chris mentioned a while ago, Jamie Baker, the executive director, saw the film and immediately understood the, the possibilities. And so we have this partnership which has enabled me to travel all over the world teaching small groups of teachers in an intimate setting not just the world peace game and the, its principles and mechanics. We start with that. People say, I want to learn about the game. I want to do it in my classroom. But when we come into the room with them, the first thing we do is we ask them a question. And the question triggers the rest of the entire week-long or two-day-long intensive. The question is, who are you really? And that is such an emotional thing. We had no idea. But after about halfway through our experience, we turn the world peace game part off. We say, you've seen that, you know the mechanics, here's the DNA for it. But now we want to hopefully use that to inspire you or influence or encourage you to now take our challenge of creating the best curriculum you've ever, ever seen or imagined in your life. So in that room for that two or three or four or five days, those teachers, master teachers, young teachers, beginning teachers, all go to work as intensely as we think they've ever worked, as they say so, and come out of that room with a piece of curriculum that is stellar. And they own it. They built it. They vetted it with other great teachers. Maybe inspired by us, maybe something to do with the World Peace Game or not, but it's theirs and it's great and it could be greater than the World Peace Game. And they take the game with them. And so we have a World Peace Game team in Hawaii, San Francisco, New York, Milwaukee, Dallas, uh, Boston. Uh, we have some interest from virtual gaming companies. I'm not sure it's going to work. <laughs> uh, actually, because the relationship is so intense, you have to really know who you're playing with. It's not going to be an iPhone app. It won't work that way. It can't work. 
But we have teams in Norway, and we're going to be in Austria and Vienna playing the game next year. So it, it's sort of taken off like, and Chris didn't mention this, this film, this little film from the, the little guys in Charlottesville. Chris is a, a genius filmmaker. The film has been broadcast on Israeli television all over the West Bank and the Middle East, and in South Korea, Norway, Estonia, <laughs> I don't know where else. But the effect of just a single man's vision has affected so many others just through seeing that film. So we don't know how far it's going to go, but it's been an incredible ride just because somebody said, I have an idea that what you're doing is a good idea. Let's get together. If you'll come over here, if you have a question, we'll just um, we'll take about three, I think, because we really want to um, have a chance for you to buy books and get your book signed. So, and please keep your questions brief. Absolutely, will. First of all, I am so inspired to be here, and thank you both for this m amazing project. Uh, my name's Tuary March, and I'm an English teacher at uh, Montgomery College. And um, my question is, I have so many, but to keep it brief, as an English teacher, I'll try, um, to keep it brief, um, how do I fight against the culture of mediocrity and support our 21st century students? What really impressed me was the enthusiasm from our, in, in the students from the film. How do we preserve that enthusiasm from that early age through high school, through college, how do you preserve the enthusiasm of the student? You know, I, just by hearing you, I think you have already found the answer to that question. <laughs> you have preserved that enthusiasm. You know, but to be, to be serious, for me, the thing that really has affected, and I cannot answer for everyone, I cannot advise anyone, really, but I can say from my experience, the thing that's helped me keep that energetic, optimistic outlook has first been uh, uh, actually something that doesn't is counterintuitive. Has been a, a self-reflective practice, every day looking into myself and finding how many flaws and faults and how many inhibitions and how much baggage I have that gets in the way of learning for other people, for the children, because I have subtle, very subtle prejudices and biases and those kind of things. And I'll, a student will come up with an answer, and I'll go. Just a minute, let me tell you, I want to do that. I think that at first, and I go, wait a minute, that's not. Let them have the full answer. Let them experience their own experience and find out if it works or not. So that subtle practice of looking inside every day, and it's hard work to go every day. You know, I used to think, I know myself pretty well. I like Tutti Frutti ice cream and Justin Bieber and um, the, the Oreos and the Ravens. You know, that's it. I'm done with self-reflection. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it's much deeper and it goes on much more continuously. But that's my first step, getting to find out who I am and removing the parts that cause a problem. And then, of course, turning it around and finding out who they are, what they really love, what they really care about, and building curriculum to it. Skateboarding, you love skateboarding? We're going to build geometry all around that. Whatever it takes, you find out where they live and you go there rather than fight against skateboarding, which never works. <laughs> so that, that would be my, my experience saying that, really. I, I don't know what the answer is for everyone, but that's what I've, I've understood. Yeah, thank you. Hi there. Um, thank you so much for share, being willing to share your story, and thank you so much for documenting the story. Um, my name is Obi Okobi. I'm the principal of City Neighbors Hamilton, which is a public charter school here in Baltimore, Maryland. and um, 
Mr. Hunter, you mentioned at one point that uh, you most of the successes that you've had have been, you know, have been able to be possible because of a caring, visionary leader who's willing to protect the teachers and let them have the space to create the great teaching and learning for themselves and for students. I guess I'm just wondering whether it's through the Martin Institute or um, some other mechanism, like what, I guess, do you know of, I'm trying to keep it an open-ended question, how can we go about creating the kinds of leaders that can create the spaces for the teachers to do what they do? Or I guess, what insights can you share? Because I know you're not going to answer the question. <laughs> That film is a teaching tool, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, I, you're right, I cannot answer specifically. However, I would say, I always have something to say. <laughs> I'm a teacher. Uh, I would say that from my experience, having that supportive network somewhere, it could be a single mentor, and without a mentor, sometimes we have to do it for ourselves, but we know what is right or we feel what needs to be done and we simply do it, and then others come to help us. The Martin Institute is designed, I think they have a cadre of uh, young people who want to be teachers and they give them 900 hours every year of training before they are let loose to actually teach, and in the classrooms of course. But that kind of support and intensive training and care and, and compassion really is what has made it possible for them to be successful in that. And so certainly that's a program that's available, I'm sure there are other programs like that too. We offer our master classes around the world, and we can go anywhere anybody wants one, and we'll give whatever we have to offer, and if it can be useful to you. But I think where you are in the position you're in, so critical. I mean, I know you're in such a place that matters so much to so many people. The effect of what you're doing, you may never even fully see. That's my experience. It may be 35 years later before you find out what happened. As with these kids who turned out so beautifully. I said, kids. <laughs> you got grandchildren, Tracy? You got grandchildren. <laughs> so, so yes, you're, you're just by asking the question is opening the door to that answer, I think. Thank you. Thank you. I hope this is not going to be... Um, let me just jump in. <laughs> I, w I want to disagree with you on something you said. I wrote down, I don't think all teachers know what works because I know too many teachers who would say fourth graders can't do that I mean we're talking about the status quo mindset it's kind of like changing the idea that the earth is not the center of the universe we're living in times where that's one of the problems um, I want to how do we change that? How do we how do we make it so that it doesn't have to be a generation of dead wood? And I'm serious. You know, I mean, I, how many people have colleagues that would say, kids that age can't do that? My know, that, question. That's a beautiful question, really. I mean, and we do have that feeling. Uh, quite a few people have that feeling. You're absolutely right. You know, I, I don't know that I can answer to that, but. I can tell you a short story of something that happened to me that maybe illustrates the effect that you're talking about, I think. Uh, Jamie Baker and I were uh, visiting a school in Nashville, Tennessee. We would go and we would talk to the teachers and 
we flew in and we were picked up at the airport by one of the, the school sent one of their young teachers. And this was an independent school from a very wealthy neighborhood. So we got there and a nice car drove very beautiful, Lexus, clean, shined up, very nice. Young man got out, lovely suit, well-made suit, clean cut, nice haircut, clean fingernails. I mean, the guy was pressed, you know. <laughs> and Jamie and I looked at him, we thought, oh, we understand. This is a, a rich kid, privileged kid. He probably never worked a day in his life. He's a teacher at the school, but he's probably got it made. So we got in this car, and he's very quiet, and during the drive to his school, he says, Mr. Hunter, I want to thank you for something. Oh, really? What's that? I want to thank you for that, uh, that thing you do in the film where you have those kids write that letter home to the parents. You know, in the film, if the students wager troops in battle and they lose them and the coin tosses and so forth, they, they have to write a letter to the fictional parents and the fictional soldiers expressing their, their condolences and so forth. It's simple for fourth graders to do. They just write a little letter, I'm sorry, you know, and they read it and we're done. I said, well, thank you. Why do you like that letter? So I like that letter, and I think you should have the students keep writing that letter. He's a young man. I said, well, why is that, sir? He said, well, a year and a half ago, I was a Marine Corps commander in Afghanistan and Iraq. I did several tours, and I was in the Battle of Fallujah which you might remember is one of the worst land battles, street to street, house to house in modern history. And all he would say about it was, he said, it was a kinetic experience. It was kinetic. That's all he would say. And I started to understand, and then he turned to me and said, you know, I think you should have him keep writing that letter because, because I had to write that letter. I had to make that phone call, I had to go to those parents' homes, and I had to tell them their children had been killed. So I think it's a good idea if you let the students know in a safe and bloodless way that there are consequences to things like that. So you keep having to write that letter. And I understood that what we are only playing at in school People who have lived the experience in the real world understand. And they write to me through our website. And our biggest fans are a group of combat veterans who are PTSD survivors. They write and say, this is such a good thing you're doing because we know. I don't know if we can tell people anything. I can talk all day, but I know that experience people who do know what these children are playing at, that has informed so much more of what I do now. I don't know if it answers your question really, but I think the experience of people who know has been helpful in informing me about what I hope to share with our children. Um, that's all I can say really. But thank you for asking that question. I hopefully have a fairly simple question. My eight-year-old daughter and I were recently listening to the rebroadcast of your TED Talk. And she said, I want to play that game. I said, well, I'll have to find out. And there was talk of the Summer Institute. So I went on the website. I can't find any information about when the next one will be. So 
is there going to be a summer institute? <laughs> yeah, we, we have a slate coming up in uh, summer 2014. This is usually about 30 to 35 students, and it takes that many to play the game. We play three to four hours a day in the mornings, Monday through Friday, for one week in the summer. Uh, we were in Denver, uh, Nashville, Charlotte, uh, Richmond, uh, I don't know where else, this past summer. We're going to be in uh, Honolulu, New Jersey, uh, California, and uh, Memphis this coming summer. Those are going to be our locations. We've had students come from all over the world, and they have never met a lot of them, and they play together. And here's the beautiful thing. This game is so complex, it takes three hours to explain how to play it. The first day, we're just explaining how to play the game. But students who have different degree levels of skills, different languages, different backgrounds, different cultures, different habits, they always, always, always manage to save the world in a reasonable, practical way every time for 35 years. So I'm optimistic, and that's where we're going to be in the summer next year. Uh, I'm training those other teachers, and there are some other smaller, uh, smaller presentations going on. They're not quite at the level of, of actually taking in uh, students from other communities yet, but they will be in the future, I think. We're trying to get this to last past me, beyond me. You know, I've, I've got to let it go now. Thank you, John and Chris and Lionel. Um, the Ivy Bookshop is out in the hall, and they are selling copies of the World Peace Game, and you can get them signed. John and um, Chris will be. Um, Chris, you want to just say something really quickly about the film and how folks can purchase it? Oh, um, actually, if I could take one minute, I'd actually like to address the previous question, and this is more as a parent. Um, at the first, the second screening we had, we had a few screenings at South by Southwest. We had a lot of teachers there. And one teacher got up afterwards and talked about how she was from the inner city of Detroit. And her kids, they couldn't, they couldn't teach, they, they wouldn't be able to play this game. And another teacher got up who had taught in Harlem and said, that's so wrong. This is exactly the skill set that our kids have because the things they have to do even to survive to get to school. So it's, but, but I, I guess what my point is, I mean, my first point, again, this was when I still had pretty young children, was, well, I know I want that second teacher. I don't want that first teacher. <laughs> and I really think that, that in many ways, I mean, not to, I'm not a proselytizer for education. I'm not an expert. But as a parent, that's the teacher I want for my children. And I really think that's the parental role, to insist that the teacher respects your children and raises the bar that they will achieve and not sits there and tolerates a teacher that doesn't respect their children. So I, I, I do think that's a role that we can all kind of take place. The fact that the film helped have a discussion that actually became pretty a, a wonderful discussion of teachers about this and about the capability of children is something that we should be having on a daily basis to make sure not to be too disparaging, but that we weed out teachers that don't respect our children enough. But okay, so as far as the film. <laughs> so, um, that right now, the, the film in the last year has been sold like just for through the Martin Institute for Educational Institutions. We're about to start selling it for home use. Um, 
you basically go to either the World Peace Game website or the rosaliafilms.com website. Um, and I have some here, but I don't even have a credit card capability, so you'd have to have a check or cash. Um, <laughs> but we will, like within literally in the next couple months, we, it will be start being made available for home usage as well. So just come on the Great. website and, and you, you'll find out how. Great. All right. Let's uh, buy some books and sell some books and have some more conversation. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>